the letter of Jude was written, like I suppose all the New Testament letters were, to people who had been converted some years previously. And they had started to, to go wrong. And as the years had gone by and the Lord Jesus had not returned, they had started to slip. And you see in Jude, it's a very short letter, you, you see the same basic elements of concern that you see uh, in Paul's letters to Corinth particularly, and in fact in all the letters. There's a, a concern about being influenced by wacky teachers, false teachers, um, there's a big concern about becoming slaves of uh, immorality and sensuality, abusing the breaking of bread, the love feast. You, you've got that here in Jude in, in verse 12 when he complains about hidden rocks in your love feasts, which I think is a, a reference to the breaking of bread. And particularly uh, a lack of uh, sense of reality in our personal relationship with the Father and Son. Now, from that point of view, these letters are all very relevant, I think, to, to many of us, because many of us were not converted yesterday. Many of us have confessed our faith in Christ for, for some years, and as the years go by, there is this difficulty in, in abiding, as John would put it, in holding in there. And Jude is writing, as I suppose all the New Testament letters were, in the run-up to AD 70. The last days and I think that we too are living at the end of an era we're living in it seems the last days before the Lord's return and there's going to be the same basic tendency for us to, to go astray and although there are discernible in this letter and in all the New Testament letters a, a concern with what we might call false doctrine as in wrong theology the biggest concern really is immorality and moral misbehavior. And so when he, he starts off there in uh, Jude verse 3, he said, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but it was need, needful for me to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. That doesn't mean that we should get involved in endless argument about theology, or what some would call doctrine, because the word doctrine just means teaching. Um, I don't think that that's what he's talking about, because he goes on in verse 4, he says, you've got to do this because ungodly men have crept in and have turned the grace of God into immorality. So then, the real problem that's caused by what the New Testament calls false teachers is not so much wrong theology, wrong interpretations of scripture but it is an immoral way of life it, it is a moral weakness which these people were justifying that is the problem and as I've often said in these these talks in my experience anyway very rarely do people leave the community of believers because they have found a better theology another religion people slip away because of interpersonal conflict and because of the way of the flesh. That is typically where people go. And that is such a tragedy. And, and that's why Jude, in that sense, is so relevant to all of us. So in verse 4, he says that these people who were turning God's grace into immorality were denying the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, our only master and lord, Jesus Christ. 
So then if Jesus is really Lord and Master, and if I were to say to you, who here believes that Jesus is Lord? Is he the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that what you call him? Or is he just Jesus to you? Everyone would say, yes, sure, he's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if he is Lord and Master, then this has meaning in practice. He is Lord and Master of our behaviour. And in that sense, we are not free. And he reminds them, verse 5, that the Lord, having saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. This is very similar language, to, or ideas anyway, to what you get in First Corinthians 10, that at baptism we, as it were, left Egypt and we went through the water and now we're in the wilderness on the way towards the promised land. And if you had therefore, in terms of Jude 5, interviewed those people who were there in the wilderness and you said, are you saved? They would have said, yes, we have been saved by God out of the land of Egypt. And yet many of them, of course, died in the wilderness and did not make it to the land of promise because, as Hebrews says, they believed not. So in one sense we have been saved, but we have got to do our bit simply in continuing, in holding on, in, in abiding, as, uh, as, Paul, as uh, John would put it. And God wants us to be in his kingdom. He wants us to be saved. Now I'd like us to have a look at verse 11 where he talks about woe to these people. Um, he says, they have cast themselves away through the error of Balaam. That's the RV margin. The uh, AV says they ran greedily after the error of Balaam for hire. They, the, the idea of running is to really to cast yourselves away. And it's the same kind of word used when the Lord Jesus said that at the last day he will cast away the bad fish. But here Jude says they cast themselves away. So then really the only people who will not be in God's kingdom are those who have condemned themselves, who do not want to be there, who have cast themselves away, who have voted for their own rejection by him. In Proverbs 1 11 and 18, he talks there about those who lay in wait for others, in fact, lay in wait for their own blood. They lurk for their own lives. So, in sin, we are really asking for our own condemnation. And in the Day of Judgment, it, it would appear that all the sins of the rejected will be gone through with them. And the way that the New Testament continually talks about the real possibility of rejection, I think, should be taken seriously by us. In fact, you could argue that there's more information about the rejected than there is about the accepted. And it's not that God is trying to use sort of scare tactics to kind of scare us into submission, but simply because he knows that there will be such a thing as rejection. And that many shall say to the Lord Jesus in that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. Because he knows that that is what's going to happen, it is understandable that he brings that continually before us. That sense of the future that we might miss. And that forever keeps us on our toes, as it were, as we perceive the intensity and the extreme ultimate seriousness of what we are about in our whole relationship with the Father and Son, that this whole thing ends at the day of judgment in only one of two ways, in rejection 
or acceptance. So in Jude 15, he says that uh, judgment is coming, and in that day he will convict all the ungodly of all their works of ungodliness which they have ungodly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken. This seems to imply that there is a going through with the sinners, with the rejected, of all their sins and of all their hard words. Think of Jesus, by their words we shall be justified or we shall be uh, rejected. So then words are important, action is important. In Jesus' parable he talks about how the last day Jesus will say to the Uh, to the righteous well done when I was in prison you came and saw me when I was hungry you fed me and they will say no we didn't he'll say yes yes you did and by the way that implies a pretty strong level of conviction that at the day of judgment you actually disagree with the Lord Jesus they were really persuaded as we will be really persuaded that this is a case of mistaken identity Lord you got this wrong that was not me you got the wrong number on your list kind of thing. That's some other guy. That wasn't me. I didn't do those things. Sorry. Yeah, it's like at the supermarket checkout, you say to the girl, look, no, sorry, look, this is wrong. Uh, yeah, you're not charging me enough or, or whatever. So I think that the resolution of this is that those who will be in God's kingdom are in his kingdom because he imputes righteousness to them. And their sins shall not be mentioned unto them. You remember Ezekiel talks in those terms that if somebody sins all their life then they repent. Well, at the day of judgment all their sins will not be mentioned unto them. But the other way around is true as well. Somebody lives a good life and then turns away. Well, all their sins will be mentioned unto them. So there are a number of verses which do imply a going through of all the behavior of God's people. And I think how it will work out, according to the the parable, is that all the good deeds of the righteous, the Lord will go through with them, but because they have genuinely done them unconsciously, not allowing the left hand to know what the right hand does, they will not be aware of them, and will say, no, 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 that, that wasn't the case. Oh, yes, it was. Whereas for those who will be condemned, who come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do wonderful works? List off all their good deeds. No, actually you didn't. You did all this, that and the other. And then this list of, of their bad deeds. In Numbers 32, verse 23, there's a prophecy of Israel in their time of condemnation. And in the Septuagint it says, You will be sensible of your sin when evil overtakes you. In other words, people will become sensitive to their sin when they are condemned. Ezekiel 6 verse 9, again talking about the condemnation of the wicked, they shall hate themselves for their evils which they have committed. This is why there is anger with self, the banging of teeth and the weeping. It's anger with self, hating themselves for all the evil which they have done. So one way or another... All our sins must be, as it were, accounted for. And here we have the greatest paradox of all time and of all space and of the entire cosmos. That as Paul says in a breaking of bread context in 1 Corinthians 11, that if we would judge or condemn ourselves, and he's talking in the context of being convicted of sin at the breaking of bread, 
we will not be condemned. Whereas if we choose not to do that, then that sin in that sense will still be accounted for because we'll be rejected and those sins will be gone through. So the, the crucial thing then in this life is to confess sin and to just accept that fact that we are sinners. And we come then to the, to the great paradox of all uh, again when Jesus will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. But if you can imagine facing the, the throne of judgment, Jesus' right hand would be the left hand from the point of view of the people standing before him. So when he says, right, you people go to my right hand, well done. From their point of view facing him, if you see what I'm saying, they have actually put themselves at the left hand. Far they're concerned, look, I've sinned, I, 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 I should be rejected. So they go to the left hand, but that's actually his right hand. And of course the other way round as well. But those who come with all their good deeds in mind are putting themselves to the right hand. Yes, sure, I, I am justified by myself. And they, by doing so, are putting themselves at the Lord's left hand. So then, self-examination is not an optional extra. Nor should we assume that, well, I do that when I break bread. Because very often our minds can wander. And in any case, is self-examination, you know, 30, 40 seconds as you perceive the bread or wine coming closer, closer towards you? Is that self-examination, thinking, ah, yeah, yeah, well, mm, yeah, I, I shouldn't do that, or yeah, I shouldn't have done that, or I better make a bit more effort with the so-and-so? I think it's more than that. And... You know, 1 Corinthians 11 is talking in the context of the breaking of bread, but the point is that there is nothing like personal reflection upon the cross of Jesus to elicit from us our own sense of sin and also to elicit within us, paradoxically or at the same time, a strong conviction that we have been saved because that's why he died. And in that we will find, therefore, a true humility. A conviction of sin and yet a definite sense that I have been forgiven. If we don't have that conviction of sin, the whole idea of salvation is not so wonderful. If we don't think Egypt's a bad place, then what's, so, what's the great deal that we were saved out of it? And so the sense of salvation... And the joy and peace that comes from that is dependent, really, on realizing the seriousness of our problem. The seriousness of human sin. It's like the old thing, well, you know, Jesus is the answer. But what's the question? Um, that's, that's right. If you don't have those questions, that, that, that sense of burden of sin, then the good news for the broken-hearted, for the, uh, the weeping, etc., for the hungering after righteousness, there's no good news, because you don't perceive your need. It goes on in verse 19, again, um, talking about those who had come in the last time, causing trouble in the Ecclesias, verse 19, these are they who make separations, or who separate themselves, having not the Spirit, if we go out from 
the fellowship of our brethren. We are going out from the fellowship of the body of Jesus. And so our attitude to each other, to the community of believers, which is the body of Christ, is therefore our attitude to him as a person. And John uses that idea in his letters when he talks about those who have gone out from us. He says that by doing so, 1 John 2.19, they have really declared that they are not of us because they went out from us. So then, we should not be those who go out. If misguided brethren throw us out of their fellowship, that is their problem. But I think we are not to go out. We are to, as far as we can, abide within, within the body. Well, he concludes very positively in Jude 20 and 21. Building up yourselves, keep yourselves in the love of God. So then there is an element to which we have to do the, the job. Building up yourselves, keep yourselves in the love of God. The plural there is possibly significant. Keep yourselves, not keep yourself. Keep yourselves. As if, in a sense, we do this for each other. And yet, earlier on in, in Jude, he has said in, uh, in verse 1, he's used the same word for uh, keeping yourselves, when he says, we are sanctified, this is verse 1, sanctified by God the Father and preserved or kept by God in Jesus. So that word preserved in verse 1 uh, is the same word for kept, which is to be found uh, when we read about keep yourselves in the love of God in verse 21. So we keep ourselves, but God keeps us. We preserve ourselves, but God does this. So then God works through our own efforts for each other. And when he says build up yourselves in verse 20, this is the same word in Ephesians 4.16, where he says that from Christ to the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the powerful working in the measure of every part makes increase or builds up the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now I will read that again. Ephesians 4.16 From Christ, the head, the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every part of the body supplies, makes increase or builds itself up, makes increase of the body, unto the edifying or building of itself in love. So then the body builds itself up. That's saying if each part contributes. So then we're told in Jude 1 that actually it is God who does that. And even Ephesians says that from Christ is that there is the, the source of this building up. But how does he work in building up and keeping and preserving us uh, in the faith? He works through people. He works through us. We are God's builders. 1 Corinthians 3, 10-14 uses that metaphor very strongly, that we are building with God. And what are we doing? We're building up a temple. And what's the temple made of? Stones. 
And who are they? Us. We are building each other up. So then, we are built up. Colossians 2 verse 4, same word, because we are in Christ. So then, by being in Christ, we are built up by others. And so, this is the whole point of of all the letters, really, in the New Testament. They're making the same point, that the church, the ecclesia, the body of believers, is intended by God to be the arena in which we are prepared for eternity. It's here that we meet our tests to patience, to love, to tolerance, to kindness, forgiveness, etc., to grace. And yet it is also from the body of Christ that the building up power of Jesus is mediated. This cuts two ways. If you cut someone off from the body of Christ... And it's all very well saying, well, we only disfellowshipped him. We didn't, um, we didn't cut him off from the body of Christ. Well, you are doing that by telling someone, we're the body of Christ, but you can't come here anymore. We don't consider you to be a brother. Yes, you are doing that. You really are cutting someone off from the, the hope and possibility, in that sense, of salvation, unless they are very strong-minded and they are more mature than you are and see your weakness and all the same, hold on to to their personal connection to Jesus. But often people don't do that. Now, the whole thing cuts in yet another way as well, that not only are we not to cut off others, but we also are not to push off from the body of Christ. And particularly in our generation, it's very tempting to do that, to think, well, you know, I can sit in front of my computer screen and uh, read the Bible and study and even break bread on my own and... Uh, you know, send, send some guy a bit of money now and again on, on the internet. Um, that's my love. And just get on and live a life like anybody else. But really, connection with Jesus involves a lot more than that. It's not just sitting in front of a computer screen. I'm afraid it's not that easy. The whole point is that salvation was made possible in terms of a community. Salvation is possible in Christ. The literal body of Jesus died and resurrected, as we know. And he, therefore, personally shall live forever, and does live forever. The promises to Abraham and to his son, or seed, as Galatians 3.8 makes clear, was actually to one person, in the singular, and that was Jesus. It was a promise that the person called Abraham's seed would inherit the earth and have blessing, and uh, in that sense, have eternal inheritance, have eternal life. The only way that we have any opportunity to share in that good news of the kingdom, which was made to two people, to Abraham and to his seed, which was a singular, as Paul emphasizes, the only way that we, we have any access to all that is through baptism into him, through identification with that body. Now, therefore, salvation is in a body, is in a community. And again, you've got that in in verse 5, as we saw, that the Lord saved a people. The RV says, saved a people out of the land of Egypt, and afterward destroyed them that believed not. 
that is alluding without doubt to our baptism and our passing out of Egypt and you, you could argue that as they became the body of Moses so we become the body of Christ and there is uh, reason to believe that from 1 Corinthians 10 where we're told that they were baptized into Moses as they passed through the sea and we are baptized into Christ and it's be exactly because of that that Jude can round off with this amazing statement verse 24 that he is able to keep us from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory without blemish in exceeding joy the only way that's possible is if we are counted as if we are Jesus and that Greek word translated presented to present you faultless it's the same one in Luke 21 verse 36 where we read that we shall be stood we shall be stood before the Son of Man. Got, it got it all worked out in the Old Testament uh, shadow when Daniel feels that he's dead and he's lying face down in the dirt as if he's dead and then he is lifted up and the angel comforts him and he is stood before the presence of God's glory. And that's what's going to happen to, to us. Colossians 1.22 got the same message to present you holy, unblameable, unreprovable free from accusation in his sight and it's only his view his perspective that matters so it's because we are in him and that practically involves being in his body counted as in him not just baptized into him but living in him and that involves association with the community that is in him on this basis he will count us as if we are him and it's not as if he just lets us off, as if he says, yeah, okay, well, I know you're sinners, but okay, I'll look the other way, I'll pretend you didn't do it. There would be no justice in that. Instead, as Romans says, we are declared right or justified. We're not only allowed through by a corrupt judge, no. We are declared right because we are in Christ. Now that, then, is the final end for us, to stand before the presence of his glory with our good deeds or his perception anyway of our good deeds being poured out in front of us and us understandably shaking our heads saying no 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 before him Isaiah 45 at the end of Isaiah 45 every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess and that's of course quoted about the new about the, in the New Testament about the day of judgment and then Isaiah 45 continues shall every man say in the Lord have I righteousness and strength? Then, I suppose, ultimately, we will realize the truth of what we're saying now, that we have been counted right because he loves us.